If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We looked at our, our text, this passage, last week. And we'll look at it again today, but I want to focus on the last two verses. We'll begin reading in verse number 25 of Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here we come to the end of chapter 6, and as I've mentioned, if we could summarize what we've seen thus far in the Sermon on the Mount in one word, it would be the word different. Beginning with the Beatitudes, we see that we are to be different. In a world that seeks to be rich, we are to acknowledge that we are poor. In a world that seeks to avoid sadness of any kind, we are to mourn over our sinfulness. In a world that seeks to be self-assertive, we are to be meek. In a world that lacks mercy, we are to be merciful, and on it goes. In the first 18 verses of chapter 6, we are told that we are to be different in our piety, our acts of righteousness. So we see at least five times in the first 18 verses, Jesus says, do not be like them. That is, we are not to be like the Pharisees who were hypocrites and like pagans who, in fact, did not believe in the true God. But you may have missed something as we've gone through. One of the things Jesus tells us is that while we are to be different and we are not to be like them, we are to look normal or natural. Um, When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. We are to be different in our actions. We see in chapter 5, we are to be different in our motivation here in chapter 6, but not necessarily different in our appearance. Um, And I think this is really important because at least the tradition I come out of, that seemed to be the focus, that seemed to be the emphasis, that we are to look different. And Jesus basically tells us we're to look like everyone else, but in our actions and in our motivation, we are to be quite different. What we saw last week is that we are not to be driven by worry, and we are not to be driven by acquisition. We saw about storing up treasure on earth versus heaven. Um, But also we're not to worry about food or drink or clothing because life is more than that and the body is more than clothing. Today I want to look at verses 33 and 34, which we did briefly, but I want to spend some time on them today. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That these things we would take to mean food, drink, and clothing, the things he's told us that we are not to worry about. 
It is one of the marks of the secular world, and by that I mean a world that lives as though God does not exist, is that it is obsessed with economic questions. In the time in which we live, it seems to be engrossed in consumerism, preoccupied with getting things, better things, and more things. The world has a religion of its own, and it is acquisition. As Jesus put it in verse number 32, the verse that comes right before this, for the pagans run after all these things. You may remember in the series on creation, we saw that the way God established, because this is who God is, is that it is life is giving and receiving. We see this within the Trinity, this giving and receiving from one another. We would call this love. We would call it life. But because Adam and Eve sinned, we no longer have that giving and receiving ethos, if you wish. And instead, we think in terms of taking and keeping. And in scripture, this way of thinking, this way of living, of taking and keeping, is called death. So when we come to our passage, Jesus makes it very clear that we cannot choose to serve two things. We can't choose to serve death and life at the same time. We can't serve mammon and God at the same time. We must choose. And in a world that prefers a lot of gray, and certainly there is a lot of gray in life, in this matter there is not. We either will serve God and live or serve mammon and die. Either you love one, cling to one, be devoted to one, or you will, in fact, be devoted to the other, and, or you, you will despise it. You will be devoted or you will despise. Now, let's be clear about something. What we hear in our passage is not a call to look for spiritual things, to run after spiritual things rather than material things, or inward things, inward realities versus outward uh, possessions, for example. It is rather a call to seek God's things and not our own. And, Jesus tells us, we are not to worry. Life is more than food and drink, and the body more than clothing. Verse 34 is oftentimes seen as, in a sense, uh, the heart of the message here in chapter 6. You'll notice it starts with the word but, which signifies a difference. In contrast to the pagans, in verse number 32, who run after these things, we, in fact, are to seek. But you will notice, if this is the heart of the passage, the key word in this verse is the pronoun his, which appears twice. We are to seek his, that is God's kingdom, and we are to seek his, that is God's righteousness. Both belong to the Father. Both are his to give. We are not told to seek our own righteousness or a kingdom for ourselves, nor are we told that we are going to be able to bring about his kingdom and his righteousness. Rather, in line with the Lord's Prayer, which is in here in chapter 6, it is to be our care, it is to be our concern that the Heavenly Father bring his righteousness and his kingdom into the world that he get himself a name now and at the time of history, at the end of history. When this concern is ours, it determines how we will live our lives. When, in fact, we want God's kingdom and his righteousness to be the center of all things, it will affect how we live, that we will, by God's grace, live life of obedience. 
Mark tells us that when Jesus began to preach, he said, the time has come, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, where God is the ruler, and it is the realm in which he rules as well. We saw when we went through this, that the great sin of Israel was that they wanted a king. They already had a king. God was their king. But they wanted a human king. They wanted to be like everybody else. And while Samuel is heartbroken, God says, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. God is king. And there are two things that are tied to the coming of the kingdom. And we've seen this. The first is the salvation of his people. And the second is the judgment of those who reject the kingdom. See, it's either or again. It's binary, if you wish. It isn't, well, you know, I really don't want to be a Christian, but I'm not against the Christian faith. I'm just sort of in the middle path. That's not how it works. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we identify ourselves with the purposes of God. We request that his great saving purpose will come to pass. He will save the people. And we are asserting that the judgment that he has promised will also come to pass. God rules, rules over all, but in particular in the lives of his people. And if we do not do this, if we do not acknowledge this, then we are like Israel of the Old Testament. We are rejecting God as king. In Matthew's account, there is no seeking of God's righteousness if we do not do what is right now. So we can't say, listen, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but bring the kingdom, bring your righteousness. No, when we seek God's righteousness, that it, it requires that, in fact, we seek to do the right thing. The emphasis is on God's righteousness, however. Can't lose sight of that. The result is, Jesus tells us that all these things will be given to us as well. For the secular world, economic goods fill the horizon. This need not be the case. This should not be the case with the followers of Jesus. What we have has been given to us as gifts. I think we forget that too easily. We think, well, I went to work and I earned money and I bought this. It is now mine failing to recognize that all that we have, including the health to be able to work, the job we have, the money that we earn, and then what we buy, these are all gifts from God. This is what God has given us. So goods are not products. Or they are products, but they're not goals. They are things we have received, but they are not the things that we are to run after, like the pagans. One author has used the analogy that while the followers of Jesus are to seek God's kingdom in the front room of their lives, gifts are being brought in the back door. The front door, if you wish, of our lives are open. We are seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. In the meantime, the Father has or will deliver the very things for which the secular world runs after the reason that they, in fact, find a meaning for life. We shouldn't forget what's written in verse number 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's not the first time we've been told this, by the way. Um, in the section on prayer, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
In both places, interestingly, we're told not to be like pagans. And we are told our Father knows what we need. So what is the purpose of prayer? It is not to inform God. It is not to say, by the way, um, health, uh, safety as I travel, uh, finances, whatever it is that you think you need, you're not telling God because he doesn't know this. He, in fact, knows this far better than you do. He already knows. In prayer, we acknowledge that he is the source of all things. We agree with what he has already told us. And I think more often than not in prayer, we are not informing God, we are informing ourselves of what we so easily forget, that all these things come from him. If you remember, prayer is a conversation. It's a dialogue that God began. We don't begin the conversation. When we think that we do, then yet yeah, it becomes a matter of informing God of what we need. But if in fact he begins a conversation as he has every day in our lives, then in prayer we respond to him. And we acknowledge that he knows what we need. He, needs, he knows that we need these things. You will notice that Jesus doesn't say, your heavenly father knows that you don't really need these earthly things. I mean, life is more than food and drink and the body more than clothing. These things are not important. And your father knows that these things are not important. That is not what Jesus tells us. He knows that you need all these things. I mentioned this the following last Sunday, but I want to sort of flesh it out a bit. This passage does not teach that we are exempt from earning our own living, that we can sit back and do nothing except to say, my heavenly father knows what I need and he will, in fact, provide. Paul was clear about this in 2 Thessalonians. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. Jesus uses the birds as an example of God's providing, his provision. How does he do this? He says that the Father takes care of them. But if you think about birds, you have birds that eat seeds, some that eat bugs or insects, others feast on carrion. And yet, this is God providing for them. They don't simply stay in their nest and food rains down on them. They have to actually go out and get it. But God has provided for them. There's a wonderful story of Hudson Taylor, uh, who was a missionary to China. And on his first trip to China in 1853, uh, the ship he was on was caught in a a horrible storm. Um, and it threatened to overturn the ship. Disaster seemed to be right on the horizon. And Hudson Taylor trusted God, and he said, you know, it would be dishonoring for me to put on a life jacket because I'm trusting God that God will take care of me. So he gave it to somebody else. It was some time later that he realized that this was wrong. And this is what he wrote. The use of means ought not to lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. The next time, I assume he put on a life jacket. We can't say, oh, God will take care of me. I don't have to do anything. God provides for the birds, and they fly around looking for bugs or worms or seeds or whatever. They still do the work, but whatever they find is God's provision. The second thing, and I mentioned last week, is that believers are not exempt from responsibility to others. 
we may in fact be the means by which other people will have food and drink and clothing. They may not have what they need, and God has chosen to use us to provide for them. I'm sure you're familiar with the last parable that Matthew records in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 25, where all of humanity comes before uh, the Son of Man at the final judgment, and you have the sheep and the goats, and he says to the sheep, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. So there it is eating. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. There it is. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. So there we have food, drink and clothing. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So the idea that God will provide all these things for you does not exclude us from the process. We may, in fact, be the means of providing food and drink and clothing for those who are in need. And then the third thing is, this passage doesn't tell us that believers are exempt from experiencing trouble. This goes back to what I just read you, because if there are people without food, without drink, without clothing who are sick, they're in trouble, and they need someone to help them. Let's be clear. To be free from worry is not the same as being free from trouble. Okay? We are not to worry, but that does not mean, oh, I don't not, I'm not going to worry because I'm not going to have any problems in my life. No. To be free from worry is not to be free from trouble. In chapter 10, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father? but they will fall. They will die. Sparrows don't live forever. But it is God who cares for them. He knows all. Nothing happens apart from his consent. Then we come to verse number 34. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The King James has the following. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. In some ways, this verse seems almost anticlimactic. It's like it should be somewhere else or not there at all. Um, we have moved from this truly significant, this amazing verse, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. you know, it's like drop the mic and walk. I mean, this, what else can you say after that? And yet what we have is this, this very strange verse. But this is consistent with Jesus' teaching, and the warning is as well. Jesus has been speaking about focus, that we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And when exactly are we to do that? Well, we're to do it today. We're not to worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow does not exist. We are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness now. It is a characteristic of being anxious 
or worrying, that it is peculiarly futuristic. It's looking ahead to what might happen. In many ways, it is tomorrow-centered rather than present-centered. And as a result, our anxieties and our worries sort of bleed away the energies that we have for this present moment, for this point in time. And rather than trusting God and obeying God and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, now we're looking ahead to something that does not exist. And as such, worrying is really unrealistic and it is a waste of our energy. When we trust God, we trust him now. It may be that we are trusting him for the future, that's fine, but we are trusting him now. Because I'm not in the future, I'm here right now. And our faith and our trust happens now. Our obedience is to happen now, not like that's something I'll do later, but something we are to do now. I will trust God that he will do something tomorrow, but as I said, I must trust him on this day. Each day has enough trouble of its own, the NIV tells us, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, we hear in the King James. The word evil here speaks of trouble or troubling, not of moral evil as such, but of those things that, that really trouble us, that distract us. In many ways, I would argue that these things are not the big things. They're the everyday mundane things, the routine, the things that the Lord willing, if we live tomorrow, you're going to do tomorrow. You've got to make the bed, cook food, clean the house, go to work, all these things we do. And as mundane and as routine as they are, they can really trouble us, sort of almost drive us up the wall. Um, each day has such things. But our focus is not to be on tomorrow, but on today. Because there are things I have to do today. And today I am to trust God and I am to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm not to worry about tomorrow. The whole chapter of chapter 6 has been a call to faith. The key word in the first half of the chapter is secretly. That when you give to those in need, it's to be done secretly. When you pray, go in the closet, pray to your father secretly. And when you fast, don't announce it to the world. Look normal. Okay? This is something that is private. In the second half, the key idea, it's not the word, because we don't find it, but the idea is that of singularity, of singly. We must choose one thing. That's it. We can't choose two things. We must choose what we are going to do. So either we will store up treasure here on earth, which is really a foolish thing to do because nature, moth, will eat it away. Time and history, rust, will eat it away. Or human beings will steal what we have, either while we are still alive or as soon as we're dead or long after we're dead, others may steal what we have. Or we will store up treasure in heaven. You can't do both. You have to choose what you're going to do. We will either serve and love, be devoted to God or to mammon. Either we will be like pagans and run after these things, or, in fact, we will seek God's righteousness and kingdom. 
today because this is where we are. We're not yesterday. We are not tomorrow. We are here right now in the present moment. That's why I think verse number 34, as strange as it might seem and as anticlimactic as it might seem, it's, in a word, it's today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't think about tomorrow. If tomorrow comes, it's got plenty of issues of its own. Right now, we are to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. It has been suggested that the life that we are to to live as God's people, as the followers of Jesus, is one that is to be marked by quiet simplicity. In which the practices, the disciplines, are done in secret and privately, giving to those in need, praying and fasting. And in which our treasures our goals, our masters, our care, if you wish, are singular. And it is the Father himself, his rule and his righteousness. At the end of chapter 5, we have this impossible verse in which we are told, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the perfection there that is spoken of is in terms of love. We're to love our enemies in the same way that God has the rain come down on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are to love as God loves. How? How can I do this? How can I possibly love my enemy? How can I love people that I don't particularly care for? Well, that's the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6 gives us two answers. First of all, by living a private life with the Father. There is to be communion with Him. And again, in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting. And we are to live a life of faith. And faith, in fact, is the how. It is the how of love. If we do not trust God, then we can't love our neighbors. If we don't seek God's kingdom and his righteousness now, by faith, then we can't love our neighbors. Faith is the how of love. So at the end of chapter 5, Jesus gives this impossible task to us, love your enemies. But here in chapter 6, he tells us how. Seek God's kingdom, seek God's righteousness. All the other stuff, the necessities, not luxuries, the necessities, these will be given to you. But love your enemy, and you do that by seeking God's righteousness in his kingdom in faith. And faith will, in fact, result in love. Otherwise, let's just throw up our hands and say, this is impossible. I can't do this. Um, I'm not even going to try. And then we end up being just like the pagans. Or worse, we're like the hypocrites, like the Pharisees, where we pretend to love, and in fact, we do not. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are verses that many of us are quite familiar with. Perhaps too familiar. I thank you for verse number 34. As strange as it sounds and as weird as it seems, it is in fact the right word for us to hear. That it is today that we are to trust you. It is today that we are to seek your righteousness and your kingdom. It is today that we are to live lives of faith.
I thank you for the jobs you've provided for each one of us. These are your provisions, your gifts. For the income that we are able to earn. For what we are able to share with those in need. We give thanks. But oftentimes, like children, the gifts become more important than the giver. And we, we forget that what we have has come as gift. You've called us to love our enemies. Help us to see that we cannot do this apart from seeking your kingdom and your righteousness. You love us immeasurably beyond we, what we can comprehend. And you speak to us every day if we would but listen. In the beauty of your creation, in the faithfulness of your love, the health that we have, the homes we have, the safety you provide, all these are your gifts. They come from a Father who knows that we need all these things. Open our eyes to see this truth. May your Spirit drive it home to our hearts and remind us from time to time of this reality. I thank you for calling us together on this day. I ask that we would be aware of your presence through the rest of this week. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave. I pray this in Jesus' name.